The nuclear industry downplays the impact of radiation released by nuclear accidents, and it went into overdrive to cover up the true health impact of Chernobyl and try to convince the rest of us that, eh, radiation, no big deal. So when you hear someone who's spent 10 years researching the Chernobyl accident and what happened in the wake of it, and he tells you... that The one conclusion that you can draw uh, from what's happened is that, you know, Although radioactivity may be bad for animals and plants, then, then human beings are, are demonstrably worse. Well, when you hear someone who wrote a definitive book about the Chernobyl accident and how it happened, and he says something like that, and remember that he said it, you'll assume that he'd understand that with the radiation released after such a catastrophic nuclear accident, the heat just got turned up on that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we conclude a trilogy of Chernobyl anniversary programs with an interview with Adam Higginbotham, author of Midnight in Chernobyl. It provides the most complete narrative likely to ever exist as to what exactly happened leading up to the explosion that night and in the immediate aftermath of the start of that disaster, as well as the circumstances that made it possible. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the duck and cover report, and more honest nuclear information than will ever appear on Game of Thrones. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 30th, 2019, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out in the U.S., where the Trump administration has continued cutting corners in nuclear safety and oversight. Trump appointees, who are a majority of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, are allowing the nuclear industry to avoid costly upgrades to plants that are not designed to withstand current flood risks. What's especially shocking about this decision, made by the NRC in January, is that a remarkable 54 of the 60 nuclear plants operating in the U.S. were not designed to handle the flood risks they face. This according to a Bloomberg report last week, which came after reviewing information exchanged between plant owners and the NRC. And we just saw evidence of this at Cooper in Nebraska, where again, for the second time in eight years, one of the nuclear facilities in Nebraska came very close to being flooded by the Missouri River. Beyond Nuclear International has a good article by Linda Penskutter called Does the Nuclear Industry Have a Backdoor into Its Regulator? This may be a rhetorical question. 
and she addresses these compromise issues in the article. We'll link to it on the website. Another issue being completely ignored by the administration and the NRC is that of nuclear reactors having potentially defective Le Creusot Arriva steam generators from France. These consist of Prairie Island 1 and 2 in Minnesota on the Mississippi River, Callaway in Fulton, Missouri, Arkansas 1 in Arkansas, St. Lucie in Florida, and Three Mile Island, where there may be problems with not only replacement steam generators by Arriva Le Crusoe because of a design defect, but they may have material defects as well. These could lead to another partial or full Three Mile Island nuclear meltdown because the design apparently causes the steam generator tubes to flutter and strike or rub against each other, and material defects could make damage occur more quickly and lead to abrupt failures. This problem with the steam generator sounds not unlike the problem with steam generators at San Onofre, which ultimately caused the shutdown of that facility. Lots of pushback in the last week or so about states using taxpayer money to greenwash dirty nuclear power. New Jersey's Public Utilities Commission awarded clean energy credits to three vintage nuclear reactors. In so doing, the state joined New York, Illinois, and Connecticut in falling for the nuclear industry's latest scheme, keeping itself afloat with public money that was supposed to incentivize a cleaner, greener future. You know, wind, solar, geothermal, things like that to generate electricity. Bills moving through legislatures in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Maryland could soon mean all the top nuclear energy-producing states in the Northeast would be using public funds to prop up an aging and uncompetitive technology. We will link to this article from New Republic on our website, and we're also working on a series of interviews to get you the story from the mouths of the people who are actively fighting against it. And for the first time in a while, here's the nuclear hot seat. And cover report. On April 29th at Nine Mile Point in New York, there was a manual reactor scram due to power oscillations and high-pressure coolant injection system initiation. What you need to know is that it's in hot shutdown and that the cause of power oscillations is currently under investigation. (coughs) Also on April 29th at the University of Missouri at Columbia, During verification of control blade operability of their research reactor, one of the blades didn't work, which triggered a manual scram, meaning full stop screeching shutdown, and troubleshooting revealed it was a broken wire in the safety mechanism. And again on April 29th at Cook Nuclear in Michigan, the Berrien County Sheriff's Department was notified by local residents of an emergency siren that had actuated. The affected siren has been disabled, and it's been verified that all associated local areas still have coverage from other functional nuclear sirens. Meanwhile, rumors of a sudden spike in Berrien County of sales of blood pressure medication, hard liquor, and Depends have not at this time been verified. And that's this week's Duck and Cover Report. In Waverly, Ohio, construction on a nuclear waste facility has been paused due to concerns of a carcinogen detected in a nearby school. Traces of neptunium, a radioactive isotope usually used in neutron detection equipment, was found by air monitoring within the school. 
aside from being radioactive, is also poisonous and can possibly accumulate in the bones. According to Health Commissioner Matt Brewster of the Department of Energy, it is a known carcinogen and it is only found in plutonium production involved in the enrichment of uranium. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. NPR ran this story as written by Robert Krulwich, and I have to say it made me laugh so much that I have to report it directly in his words. It's based on research he did with science historian Alex Wellerstein, who runs the site nuclearsecrecy.org and is the man behind NukeMap, where you can find out what's going to happen if a nuclear bomb goes off in your neighborhood. So you're minding your own business when all of a sudden a nuclear bomb goes off. There's a shockwave, fires all around, general destruction, and you, having somehow survived, need a drink. But what can you do? There's no running water, not where you are, but there is a convenience store, and there are still bottles of beer, Coke, and diet soda intact on the floor. So you wonder, can I grab one of those beers and gulp it down, or is it too radioactive? And what about taste? If I drink it, will it taste okay? Right, like that's the major thing you're going to be worried about. Well, science historian Alex Wellerstein is in possession of a 1957 U.S. government study called The Effect of Nuclear Explosions on Commercially Packaged Beverages, which addresses this very question. After the bomb, can I drink the beer? In 1956, the Atomic Energy Commission exploded two bombs, one with an energy release equivalent to 20 kilotons of TNT, the other 30 kilotons. Note that the yield of the Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons. At the nuclear test site in Nevada, bottles and cans were carefully placed various distances from ground zero, so long ago that some of the bottles are actually marked returnable. Afterwards, it was shown that the bottles closest to ground zero were indeed radioactive, but only mildly so. The sodas and beers were, according to Alex, quote, well within the permissible limits for emergency use, which means... It won't hurt you in the short term. And the report also says, immediate taste tests, you gotta wonder who got that job, indicated that the beverages, both beer and soft drinks, were still of commercial quality, although there was evidence of a slight flavor change in some of the products exposed at only 1,270 feet from ground zero. The most blasted beers were definitely off. So after a nuclear explosion... If you want to get blasted a second time, feel free to drink any of the beer that might be there. The taste might be off, but hey, at least you're alive to taste it. And as Robert Coleridge sums it up, for me, the takeaway here is that the next time you find yourself stocking up on beer, remember, it's not just for the long weekend. It might be for the end of days. And that's why, whoever thought this one up, you are this week's Nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Over to Japan, where that country's nuclear regulator on Wednesday, April 17, said it would start ordering shutdowns on any reactors for which power companies have not met deadlines for installing anti-terrorism safety features. The deadlines start next year and are different for each reactor, with the earliest falling in March of 2020 for Kyushu Electric Sendai Reactor in southwest Japan. Nine reactors are currently online at five facilities across the nation, 
and these are unlikely to have the necessary facilities completed before their deadlines. Consequently, it is possible that, one by one, these reactors will have to suspend operations. Exports of agricultural products produced in Fukushima Prefecture actually rose about 2% in fiscal 2018 to a record 217.8 tons, this according to the prefectural government. Now, exports are expected to hit a record high for the second straight year, backed by an expansion in rice exports to Malaysia in fiscal 2017 and in exports of Japanese pears and other items to Vietnam and Thailand in fiscal 2018. Note that South Korea and 23 other nations still have in place restrictions on Japanese imports, most specifically seafood. How about some good news? In Taiwan, that country's president, Tsing Ing-wen, reaffirmed her anti-nuclear stance at a march where she walked holding the hands of children during an anti-nuclear demonstration in Taipei. At a news conference on Saturday, April 27, Tsai said that her administration was taking efforts to promote renewable energy sources and reduce the need for nuclear power. She also vowed to retire nuclear power plants and pledged that she could do so without creating power shortages for Taiwan's 23 million people. And Norway has announced that it will close its last nuclear research reactor after 50 years of operation and a checkered past characterized by difficulties in safely storing radioactive waste. The Jeep 2 research reactor at Kieler near Oslo has been shut for scheduled maintenance since last December, and that's when corrosion was found on several important safety components during an inspection. On Thursday, April 25th, Norway's Institute for Energy Technology, which runs the reactor, said that repairing it would be too costly. Estimates by the Bologna Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to covering nuclear issues in that part of the world, final storage for the waste from the Kieler reactor, as well as from the Halden Research Reactor, which was shut down last year, could cost more than $1.7 billion, well beyond what the Institute for Energy Technology has budgeted to safely store its radioactive legacy. It is therefore thought that the state will have to bear the brunt of the expenses. As was said by Frederick Haug, president of the Bologna Foundation, the price for getting rid of old sins is high, but Norway must pay the cost, plain and simple. A coalition of 24 watchdog groups in Canada took out an ad in the Hill Times, which is read by most members of Parliament and Senators, as well as their staff in Ottawa, on what they called grave concerns about the handling of Canada's federally-owned nuclear waste by a multinational consortium that includes SNC-Lavalin and corporate partners, some of which have faced criminal charges and or entered into deferred prosecution agreements. You can read a copy of this full-page ad by going to ccnr.org, which stands for the Canadian Coalition on Nuclear Responsibility. Dangerous cracks have been found in the 43-year-old nuclear reactors, Hunterston B reactors in Ayrshire, UK, that could lead to a full evacuation of Edinburgh and Glasgow. There is a serious safety fault with the reactors where the graphite moderator cores develop cracks, leading to instabilities that could lead to a major nuclear accident. Russia has launched the world's first floating nuclear power station, which has been nicknamed Chernobyl on Ice. It can be towed anywhere and release radioactive water anywhere.
What could go wrong? And finally, in the UK, the Royal Navy can't seem to figure out how to dispose of old nuclear submarines. Hey, guys, if you can't dispose of it safely, if you can't recycle it, don't build it in the first place. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, it never seems to end. Nuclear's encroachment on the world, that is. The stories just keep coming, thick and fast, of how the planet and its people are being compromised and propagandized into an ever-expanding game of my nuke's bigger than your nuke and look how much money it's making me. That's why every week, Nuclear Hot Seat does its best to cover the issues, events, policies, people, and yes, the numnutsical anecdotes about nuclear issues around the world. And we do so in a way that you don't have to have pre-existing expertise in order to understand. The show is geared for people who know nothing and are willing to learn something, and for people who know something who would like to know a little bit more. In order to do that, we need your help. Nuclear Hot Seat is dependent upon donations to meet our monthly expenses and keep going. I'm still researching it, but it seems that Nuclear Hot Seat has become the longest-running program in the world focused exclusively on nuclear issues. As we finish up our first eight years of programming, won't you help us keep doing this and keep moving ahead? We do make it easy for you to donate. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to make a one-time donation or to set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you on a budget, on the website there is also a big green Donate button that, with a few simple clicks, allows you to set up a recurring donation of just $5 the month, the same as an iced mocha chocolata from your neighborhood barista. That's where our monthly operating budget comes from. And that's why whatever you have done to help, whatever you can do to help, you have my deepest gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. Adam Higginbotham is an accomplished writer who has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Wired, GQ, and Smithsonian. Now he is the author of Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. This is the first complete account of the catastrophe that encircled the world with radiation and helped precipitate the fall of the Soviet Union. Higginbotham draws upon recently declassified documents, letters, unpublished memoirs, and material from the archives of the Chernobyl Museum in Kiev, as well as scores of original interviews with participants in the events of 1986. The book reads like a thriller, with identifiable characters, arcs of action or inaction, good guys, bad guys, dupes, government corruption, and international politics. It is almost a great book. But as you'll hear, the author and I also have a complete variance of opinion when it comes to his conclusions as to Chernobyl's ultimate impact on the world. I'll explain afterwards what led me to conduct what some might see as an interview that turned, let's just say, politely rude is one possible description. I've also left this interview completely unedited. So at times, there will be more silence than has ever before been part of Nuclear Hot Seat. Afterwards, as I said, I will jump in with a bit more information. I spoke with Adam Higginbotham 
on Monday, April 8, 2019. Adam Higginbotham, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. What initially drew you to Chernobyl as a subject on which you were willing to spend what turned out to be 10 years of your life in order to write the book? Well, I, I mean, I was first drawn to it um, because it was a, a kind of, it's a, simply a very compelling story, I think. And back when I first began reporting on it, back at the end of 2005, just ahead of the 20th anniversary of the accident, um, it, it seemed as if it was kind of a, it was a story that was about to slip into history. And, um, you know, there was a received version of the, of the accident that, that everybody seemed to have agreed upon, which was based on, on uh, you know, reporting and, and a handful of books that had come out in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, or as it was still collapsing back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and uh, the magazine story I, I went to work on was to was to was to reconstruct. My aim was to reconstruct the events of the night of the accident through the experiences of surviving eyewitnesses. Um, and when I began meeting them, I found the stories that they told me so kind of surprising and compelling that I pretty pretty quickly realised that that there was definitely a book length narrative um, to be written there of a story that really hadn't been told before. Um, but I, 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 at that time, you know, as I say, it seemed everybody seemed to have agreed what the story was, and it was quite hard to get people interested in it. Uh, and then I went back on another magazine story in 2011, this time about a different aspect of the accident, talking about the uh, the long-term consequences of of the radiological contamination. Um, and then at that point. Shortly after that story was published, the Fukushima accident happened. So it was clear that then, you know, this was not simply a, a historical story, but still had contemporary relevance. Uh, and then, even though at that point I, I kind of had some experiences within the exclusion zone that frightened me sufficiently that I, I swore I would never go back. Uh, a couple of years later, I found myself once again writing a magazine pitch to write another story, and, and you know, it was clear that this really hadn't clearly had not let go of me. Um, and, and at that point, I started thinking, well, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's something longer here. <laughs> Perhaps I should embark on writing a book. So that's what happened. What did it take for you to do the extensive research that you did to put the narrative together? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the principal, the most important sources were these were people that I interviewed um, over the years you know, between 2006 and 2018, I interviewed around 80 people, I think. And, you know, many of them I went back and met again and again in order to kind of to establish the sort of, of novelistic level of detail that I needed to construct the narrative. So that's really the, the heart of it. Um, but then, you know, in order to corroborate their stories and, and, to, and to make sure that it was it was accurate, you know, then I had to also use documents that I found in archives in in Kiev and in uh, London, in Moscow, and here in the United States. Um, and I also had an enormous amount of help, both from researchers and translators in, in Russia and in, in Ukraine, and also from the people at the, the Chernobyl Museum in Kiev, uh, which has this fantastic archive of both original documents and uh, films and photographs 
and um, first-person testimony that they've been compiling and curating for for more than 20 years. Um, so there was a, there was a huge amount of material, and it, and it just you know I, I made many many visits to to Ukraine and and to Russia in order to meet people and to find more material. The narrative, the storytelling aspect of it is quite compelling, more so than one would tend to expect in a book on a nuclear accident. Were you aware of the dramatic through lines and the way these stories would come together before you started? Did you have an inkling of it or was this all surprising and new to you? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I knew the, the dramatic outline back in 2006. I mean, I knew that this was a uh, was a, a was a truly epic and compelling story. Um, and the, when I decided to write a book, you know, the book that I wanted to write was a history book that that was a thriller narrative. And I absolutely knew that that was possible from some of the individuals I'd spoken to and some of the main storylines that I knew about. Um, but really what you know what it required to make that work was to was to go and find these people people that i hadn't already spoken to um and to to find out more about their stories and to to report that out in further detail or you know in the cases of those people who who had died to find friends and relatives who could tell me about them and their backgrounds and what what they were really like because part of the the part of what I found frustrating in my initial reading about the subject and the story back in 2006 was not only were, you know, the accounts focused on very specific aspects of the accident, you know, on the kind of the, the most gruesome and, and spectacular parts of the night of the accident itself. Um, but, the, you know, the, the, also most of the people involved were simply names on the page. The, none of them were, were kind of were animated into into or fully realized human beings. Um, so part of what I wanted to do was, was to make sure on one hand that, that the protagonists in the book you know, came off the page. They had a, a life before the accident. They had a life after the accident. They weren't simply these individuals who wandered in from stage left you know, immediately before the explosion. Um, and the other was that, that, that I found that in some accounts or in many accounts really, um, the people in the story had just been rendered as these sort of uh, stereotypes of Slavic victimhood who, you know, had no um, agency in events. And, and they seemed, it didn't seem, uh, they didn't seem real people to me. And of course, when I started talking to, to the people who are involved, you know, they're, they're complex characters. They're not simply, um, you know, corrupt apparatchiks who, who ruthlessly send their underlings into a blazing inferno. And they're not simply, um, you know, pure Soviet heroes who commit themselves to fighting the blaze with not a thought for their own safety. But, you know, there's shades of grey on, on both sides. Um, and, it, and it's that, I think, that, that helps make it into a compelling narrative. And it was that that I knew that I really had to report out properly and, and in depth when I began working on the book. That was one of the things that I really appreciated in hearing all of the different angles at which you came at these people and their circumstances. There was the technical, there was the political, there was the personal, there were the events of that evening and the impact. And one of the things that helped in putting across 
the seriousness and the intensity of this was your description of radiation's exact impact on the human body, which I have to say in all my years of doing nuclear hot seat was perhaps the best I have ever read. It was clear. It was clear, concise, not sensationalistic, but you did not spare the gory details of what radiation doses do to the human body. What did you do to research and get right smack on the point with that part of the book? Um, well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know, there's a lot of academic and scientific material about this. Um, so I read a lot of that. There are also scientific papers that have been written specifically about the victims of the accident. Um, but beyond that, I went and interviewed doctors who treated patients in the hospital number six. Um, I spoke to their relatives. I spoke to um, individuals who'd been treated there themselves and survived. Um, and I also had access to you know, a lot of first-person testimony from, for instance, that um, one of the victims kept a, kept a diary, which he then donated to the, the Chernobyl Museum. So I had access to that material, you know, which contains, um, I think I, I included in the book, one of his sketches um, of, of the immediate aftermath of the accident. But he included sketches, for instance, of his, you know, what his hospital room looked like. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was able to get material from, from all sides. And then, you know, in order to, to, to make sure that it was all accurate, I then talked to, you know, um, one expert in radiobiology who, who kind of talked me through, um, you know, the complexities of, of doses and, and the impact of, of that kind of thing. What kind of engineering and international cooperation was required Let's move, okay, let me reframe that a little. Let's move on to some of the more technical logistics. What kind of engineering and international cooperation was required to contain the damage from the accident? <laughs> well, well, I think uh, the question of what kind of international cooperation was required is rather separate from what kind of international cooperation was actually requested and agreed to. Um, <laughs> because uh, although... Uh, Western countries did offer assistance in the immediate aftermath of the accident. Um, the Soviet Union re re refused almost all of it, with the exception of, of um, that offered by Robert Gale and the other handful of Western doctors who went to help treat patients in hospital number six in Moscow. Um, so that you know, the technical solutions to, to what happened were all. Uh, cooked up using Soviet engineering and Soviet manpower. They they bought some equipment from from overseas. You know they used massive cranes in order to put together the, what was called the sarcophagus, with which they covered up the ruins of reactor number four. Eventually, um, you know, and, and concrete pumping equipment and things like that that had to be bought in gold rubles um, from Germany and elsewhere. But the, the, um, I don't think there was any international aid because the, the Soviets simply refused to countenance it because partly they wanted to keep um, their technology, their nuclear technology secret, and also they, they didn't want anybody to really find out what the true extent of the accident had been. The reviews of your book all seem to have picked up on your description of today's Chernobyl exclusion zone as a radioactive Eden. What was your intention in using that phrase? 
Well, I think actually in the book, what I say is that, that it's perceived as a radioactive Eden. I don't say that it is a radioactive Eden, um, because I don't think it is. Um, you know, it's an area in which animals have come back to repopulate the countryside in the absence of man. Um, and, you know, this, the, the fact of this, of the numbers of animals that, have, that are spotted within the exclusion zone, has been used as part of a justification of the explanation that, that um, you know, nature has staged a remarkable recovery in spite of extreme radioactive contamination, which, you know, I take to be a kind of, you know, furtherance of Gaian ideas. Um, Excuse, but, me, a fur, excuse me, a furtherance of what ideas? You know, the, the, the kind of Gaian principles of, of like, you know, the Earth being this, this single organism that can shrug off the, the impact of mankind's, um, you know, ecological destruction. Um, but, but, but I mean, I don't think that really the science necessarily supports that. I think that the one conclusion that you can draw uh, from what's happened is that, you know, although radioactivity may be bad for animals and plants, then, then human beings are, are demonstrably worse. What's your familiarity with the work of evolutionary biologist Dr. Timothy Mousseau, who has been studying mutations in the exclusion zone on the ground for more than 15 years now? Oh, well, the, the story I did back in 2011 um, uh, concentrated on, on a lot of uh, uh, Tim and, and Anders Muller's work, and I interviewed both of them at that time. Um, so I, I'm pretty familiar with his work, yeah. What I'm curious about is, and I'll, I'll cut to the chase on this, that for this almost the entire book, you have painted a truly horrific picture of what happened at Chernobyl, what happened to people, what happened to the environment, in addition to the politics and all the other logistics that went along with it. And then at the very end, you seem to flip a switch and go into a very pro-nuclear and nukes are great and they're going to save us in the future kind of a line. And for me, those two pieces did not line up. How did you make that accommodation? Well, I don't think that, that I'd agree that I flip a switch. I think if you go back to the beginning of the book, you'll see that the through line um, of nuclear technology is that it was you know, developed for, for um, military purposes and that the nuclear reactor models that are used both in the West and uh, you know, in former Soviet countries were all developed from from nuclear, uh, military nuclear technologies of various different kinds, whether it's, you know, from plutonium production reactors, which provided the basis for the reactors that were used in Chernobyl, to PWR reactors in the, in the West, which, you know, had their origins in um, a model developed for the U.S. Navy. And the point that I make at the end of the book is that, um, you know, if you were starting to develop nuclear reactors from the standpoint that you simply wanted to generate electricity, you wouldn't have used any of these models um, because they have, you know, inherent problems for that purpose. And yet there are fourth-generation nuclear reactors which have been, you know, developed and put on the drawing board specifically to generate electricity. And those seem to be, in principle, a great deal safer and present a possible solution to the problems of global warming. We could get into a debate on that. 
what I want to look at now is your stating, or actually, from my perspective, understating of the damage to human health and life as a result of the radiation released from Chernobyl. What is your familiarity or the extent of your familiarity with the book Chernobyl Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment by Alexei Yablokov and Vasily and Alexei Nesterenko? I'm aware of it. That's the book that, in, as of 2004, presented from literature drawn from over 1,000 published titles and Internet articles, primarily that were in Slavic languages and not translated into English. Yeah. Close to a million premature deaths as of 2004 from Chernobyl radiation. Yet you choose to go with the... WHO, World Health Organization, IAEA, and UNSCEAR line, that very few people died as a result. Why did you go with those statistics as opposed to the ones that came from Yablokov and the Nesterenkos? Well, because I think that I chose to listen to the scientists that I spoke to um, and the general scientific consensus about the damage caused by radiation to human beings has been arrived at over the last 70 years. As a journalist, so throughout the book, you showed all of the different aspects of what was going on, the pros, the cons, the arguments, the people saying one thing, the people saying the other thing. Yet in this section, you did not even mention this book and the work it reflected or the fact that there is controversy or disagreement to that extent, I did not see the close to one million premature death figure mentioned. And I'm wondering how you could skip over the fact of the disagreement, even if you didn't agree with the, with the conclusion. Well, I, I think I point out in the narrative a few times that there is disagreement and controversy about the consequences of the accident. And you're talking about one monograph um, published you know, over, as I say, a history of scientific research that goes back 70 years. Much of really outside the, the um, it's outside the parameters of the book to go into a kind of extensive examination of every piece of scientific literature which addresses this question. But the question is certainly addressed. Were you under any kind of uh, pressure or leadership or influence or possibly editing that pushed you towards using the World Health Organization, IAEA and UNSCEAR as your sources, as opposed to giving some alternatives? (laughs) Sorry, you suggesting there's some sort of conspiracy to to push me into writing about about a World Health Organization report. It's that, from my perspective, and I am clearly on an opposite side when it comes to nuclear. I am not in favor of the technology at all. And I find the assurances of the industry to be absolutely without merit, because every time they say something can't happen, it ends up happening at some point, maybe not immediately, but the potential is always out there. And 
the World Health Organization has been opposed extensively by, of course, smaller voices that don't have the funds, don't have the resources to put the information out in a larger way. And I was just wondering why that didn't seem to get any play in a book that took so many different perspectives into account. Well, as I say, I disagree that that the controversy over this doesn't get any play in the book. It's an important part of the story, um, and it's certainly mentioned. And, you know, I've interviewed, uh, you know, Tim Musso and Anders Moller, for instance, at, at great length, you know, and their argument, I think, would be on your side now. Yes, they definitely are. I've interviewed Tim many times for this show. Right. And actually... So- Right, so there, you know, this this viewpoint is certainly represented in the narrative of the book. A personal question: Did you actually physically go to Chernobyl and the exclusion zone? It sounded like you did. Well, wait. Have you? I'm sorry. Have you read the book? You've read the yes, book. Yes, right? yes, yes. I read the book. So. I'm just trying to establish this for the listeners. Right. Oh, so yes. Yeah. Yeah. Many times. What, if any, protective gear did you wear while you were there? Uh, when I was inside the plant itself or... or and the in grounds around in Pripyat, anywhere on the... On the I, didn't wear, I didn't wear any protective gear. You didn't. Uh, did you go through any detoxification when you came back? No, I did not. Do you have any concerns? No, I don't. And your health is fine? So far. May it stay that way. Thank you. Let's just get to this one. Do you consider Midnight in Chernobyl a cautionary tale? And if so, in what ways? I certainly do. Um, You know, I I think that it's a cautionary tale, um, you know, in the same way that the tale of the Titanic is a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale of technological hubris and um you know mankind's misguided belief that that uh he can conquer the forces of nature um but in terms of it being an anti-nuclear tale i i i really don't think that it necessarily should be um you know and and i also think that that you know i'm not quite sure why you're you you're interested in representing me as a sort of you know, fervent pro-nuclear voice, because I'm not. What I suggest in the book is that, you know, there are people who suggest that nuclear energy is a viable energy source for the future, and that that is one that's, that's a viewpoint that's worth considering. I mean, it, it, is not, it is not a book that's kind of, you know, taking one side or the other. As I say, that's, you know, that's, that kind of complex argument is really outside the remit of the book. Is there anything else you'd like to add at this point? I, I don't think so, no. Okay. I just had the experience while reading your book. I mean, it was so engrossing and so deep and so complex and so well written. I mean, you really are a marvelous writer and put together a tremendous amount of information in a way that it did read like a novel that when I got to the final chapter, I found it jarring 
because after seeing all the problems and the difficulties created by Chernobyl, to say nothing of where that radiation went and the virtual forever nature of the radioactivity that has been vested on the world because of it, to read that Bill Gates is, you know, doing a wonderful thing by being behind this new nuclear technology and coming through that way, I just found myself shocked and disoriented because it didn't seem to be the logical conclusion of the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, Libby, I mean, I, I just have to say that I'm not a fundamentalist, you know. And, um, what do you and mean I by think, that? I think that the book reflects that. You know, I think that that there is ample controversy about these issues, and, you know, a book like this is not the place to litigate them. Okay. And so what I've said in the book, you know, is that some people believe this and some people believe the other. And, in fact, we might never know the truth because of the nature of the cover-up of the information in the first place. Okay, I think that's a good note to end on. So let me just say, Adam Higginbotham, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Adam Higginbotham, author of Midnight in Chernobyl. Not my usual interview demeanor, but then I was mad at this book before I ever read it. Now, let me be clear. Nothing can take away the brilliance of Higginbotham's recounting of the Chernobyl accident. It is a thrilling narrative with plenty of cliffhangers, shocking depictions, and political intrigue worthy of a Dan Brown novel. Meticulous research went into recreating the step-by-step, play-by-play, before and immediate aftermath of the accident for those directly involved with it. His explanation of the impact of high-level radiation on the human body is the best I have read. Powerful, clear, and sparing none of the difficult details. His narrative writing skills show a gossamer precision and dramatic tension that explains the man's other high-level writing credits. And make no mistake, Midnight in Chernobyl is definitive as regards what we will ever know about the accident, and it's doubtful that anyone will be able to surpass it or even be moved to try. Having said that, I was and am appalled that anyone who could write that movingly and thoroughly about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and the impact immediately afterwards on the people could so fumble the final chapter. Admittedly, the first thing I did when I got my copy was turn to the index, and I immediately knew. No mention of Alexei Yablokov, Vasily Nesterenko, or Alexei Nesterenko, meaning no mention of their 1994 book, Chernobyl, Consequences for People and the Environment. This was the book which translated Eastern European data that had not before been examined, certainly not here in the West, and which came up with an approximated 985,000 extra deaths as a result of the radiation release from Chernobyl. But Higginbotham ignored the book and its implications. Instead, he went full-on pro-nuke quoting well-worn echo-chambered stats by the unholy trinity of the World Health Organization, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and UNSCIR, the United Nations Scientific Community on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. 
this triumvirate, well known to be dedicated to the promotion of nuclear power around the world, believes and states and repeats all the time that only 56 people died from Chernobyl's radiation. Higginbotham didn't even give full play to the fact that there is high controversy about the number of dead, which from a journalistic perception would only be fair. Instead, he uncritically cited those organizations' conclusions that the public health effects of the Chernobyl accident, quote, were not nearly as substantial as had first been feared. Another small but telling point is something he quoted from another source, but in such a way that it has been picked up as his. And that is referring to Chernobyl as, quote, a radioactive Eden, a contradiction in terms if there ever was one. But here's the thing. As the author, he's the one who chose the quote. And he didn't contradict it by saying, well, if you look at the work of Tim Misso, there is some controversy, dot, dot, dot. And as for mutations in the so-called radioactive Eden, Tim Mousseau's work, which he is familiar with because he's previously written an article about Tim's work, Tim's findings and conclusions were given two scant mentions, quickly passed over and given no real weight. Using that radioactive Eden quote from someone else is the journalistic equivalent of saying something while being able to claim, I didn't say it. Yes, and Brutus was an honorable man. So here's my suggestion to listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. If you want to know about the Chernobyl accident itself, the play-by-play, so to speak, and the aftermath of those directly involved with it, yes, Higginbotham's book is a great read, none better. But don't read the final chapter. Ignore it. Instead, To learn the truth about what happened as a result of this nuclear disaster, purchase and read Kate Brown's book, Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future, which admittedly came out on the heels of Higginbotham's book and thus was unavailable to him for his own research. Manual for Survival gives lie to all the lies and manipulations that officially diminished perception of the radiological footprint of Chernobyl. Brown performed three years of her own research on the ground into 27 Eastern European medical archives and came up with original documentation that proves that not only did Chernobyl kill hundreds of thousands more people than has been officially admitted, but that it continues to do so. I interviewed Kate Brown on last week's show, Nuclear Hot Seat Number 409, and I strongly urge you to at least listen to what the woman has to say because it has the weight of truth and the footnotes to back it up. I could only hope that Adam Higginbotham, his editors and publisher, would do the same. And one final Chernobyl announcement. HBO is running a miniseries on Chernobyl starting on May 5th. After months of requesting an interview and, hopefully, a screening of at least one episode, HBO sent me a press release and their best wishes. If you've got HBO, you'll be able to watch it. And please, watch out for the final screen summing up the consequences. Get a screenshot of it if you can. I doubt that it will be in line with either Yablokov or Brown. Activist shout-out! Some more demonstrations around Earth Day to acknowledge. In the U.K., the group Stop New Nuclear achieved a world record in nuclear waste barrel connectivity 
as their members and supporters worked to surround Springfields, the world's first nuclear fuel manufacturing plant that still carries out civil and military nuclear contracts for facilities across the U.K., the protesters all wore really adorable yellow barrel costumes. They were very elegant, and I think plans to sew them are available. We will have a picture up of this demonstration on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 410. Here in the greater Los Angeles area, LA's Physicians for Social Responsibility and Parents Against the Santa Susana Field Lab demonstrated at the Boeing site of the 1959 nuclear meltdown, which also contained other nuclear accidents and radioactive burn pits in its Simi Valley site. This is only 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles and about 30 miles from my home. It's also the location where the recent Woolsey fire began. And dirt, dust, and ash from that accident are still being analyzed to see what, if any, radionuclides were re-released and re-aerosolized by the fire. The protest was against the Boeing Company's Earth Day PR stunt, where they invited people to take a hike through the grounds of the Superfund site. Not a word from them about possible contamination. So that's what the activists did. They had signs, they were wearing hazmat suits, and they handed out dozens of decontamination kits filled with particulate dust masks, hand wipes, and flyers on how to clean up after potential exposure to nuclear and chemical waste. One person who showed up for the hike even decided to turn around and not join the hike after learning about how dangerous the site still is. We've got a great picture, and we will have it up on the website again, episode number 410. For younger activists, meaning 25 and under, there are two opportunities for scholarships to study nuclear issues in Japan. The deadlines are coming up fast as of mid-May, so you'll have to move. We will have links up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 410, which will give you direct links to the applications so you can decide what you want to do. But realize the first of these deadlines is May 10th, so... Move once you find out about this. And if anybody hears this and knows a young activist who might be interested, please get them the information ASAP. Just for the fun of it, because we all need more of that, there will be a clip from The Muppet Show featuring a nuclear-powered shaver. And put it on your calendar. Another nuclear anniversary that is not given the attention that it deserves. On July 13 and 14. Navajo Nation in Arizona will be holding ceremonies and events in commemoration of the 40th anniversary of the Church Rock uranium tailings spill. That's where a uranium tailings dam was breached, releasing 1,100 tons of uranium waste and 94 million gallons of radioactive water into the Puerco River, severely contaminating the waters and the land. We will have more on Church Rock as we get closer to these events. Here's today's final thought. Well, you've heard my thoughts for this week. I am out of here. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 30th, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net and our friend Sean McGee, dunrenard.wordpress.com and our friend Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, which is put out by somebody, and I don't know who it is, but thank you very much, Beyond Nuclear International, thinkprogress.org, documentcloud.org, Greenpeace, pencapital-star.com, 
NewRepublic.com, ScienceTimes.com, NPR.org, Reuters.com, JapanTimes.co.jp, FoxNews.com, Bellona.org, Dr. Gordon Edwards and the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, EdinburghLive.co.uk, ABC.net.au, that's ABC Australia, NationalInterest.org, NuclearDarkness.org, TheBulletin.org, JakartaPost.com, the soul-dead cubicle drones who write press releases for World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to all of you for listening. And a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners, supporters, and followers around the world. You are in 123 countries on six continents and counting. If you haven't already done so, please go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. Make sure you click on Like. Be sure to share the posts, respond to a post, leave a comment, and the chances are better all the time that I will be responding to it. And welcome to all of you on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S., You show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Now, if you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered by email every week so you do not miss a single episode, it's easy to do. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com. Scroll down to the yellow box and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. Now, listeners are a big part of what makes Nuclear Hot Seat go. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world as well as in your own backyard, Take a moment to send a donation of any size to Nuclear Hot Seat. We have the buttons available on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, and we will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating reminding you that luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to a nuclear reactor. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.